Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. In this episode, I'm joined by Brother Guy Consumano. He's a Jesuit and the director of the Vatican Observatory. He's an astronomer and is actively practicing how to find God in all things. Brother Guy helps to bring new perspectives on loving God and science. Just a reminder, we may not always share the same viewpoints or opinions as our guests, but our desire is for people to feel safe to join us at the table and on this journey of life together. I may not come to the same conclusions on everything Brother Guy has, and you might not either, but at least we can come together and bridge the divide with grace. My desire is to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself and stir up good conversations. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So enjoy this episode on Church and Science. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing our Jesuit brother, Brother Guy Consolmagno. Welcome. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you are an astronomer and the director of the Vatican Observatory. Prior to that, you were the curator for the Vatican Meteorite Collection. I used to be. When they made me the director, I handed that over. Right, exactly. I'm sure it would have been tricky to do both things. (laughs) I would much prefer to be the curator, to be honest. Yeah, and you even have an asteroid named after yourself. That's pretty fun. That is. (laughs) So... Tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do as the director of the observatory. Well, as a director, I really take seriously that sense that whoever is in a leadership job, it ought to be a kind of a a servant's job. Mm -hmm. My job is to make sure that the other astronomers at the observatory get the resources they need to do the science they want to do. And so that means that... uh, I do the boring stuff like preparing the budget every year that we submit to the Vatican City State. Mm-hmm. And uh, I make sure that people have office space where they can work and that they have the computers they need. And I encourage them to you know, go to meetings. An awful lot of it comes out of my history of having been a scientist at normal research institutions and knowing what worked and what didn't, and how we can take advantage of what makes the Vatican different from, say, a place like MIT. Mm, On the one hand, we don't have the same budget as MIT, but on the other hand, we also don't have the same restrictions. Um, We don't have to worry about coming up with results after three years to get the grant renewed. Right. We can do long-term research projects, and that's exciting. Yeah, so I guess that would enable you a little bit to kind of explore a lot of different things, because you wouldn't feel like you have to get results, right? Yeah, and these guys are not worried about getting tenure. So, uh, you know, not in right away, at least. Right. So you are an astronomer and a theologian. I'm not a theologian. I'm an amateur when it comes to theology. Right. Well, you've... Important. Yeah. Okay. Good to clarify. But you've shown great interest in that as well as... It comes with the job. It comes with being a Jesuit. I was an astronomer for nearly 20 years before I joined the Jesuits. And the one thing that I learned is that if you're going to be a Jesuit doing this job, people are going to ask you about certain things and you'd better be ready to answer. So I studied the history of Galileo. People are always going to ask me about Galileo. Yeah. I, I did a couple of courses on on quantum physics and Eastern mysticism, because people want to think that they're the same thing. They're not. Uh-huh. Both yeah. of them are interesting, but they're really not the same thing. Right. 
And uh, also knowing that I was going to be in the public eye, I learned about black holes, even though there's nothing farther from the research I do than black holes. It's kind <laughs> of, you learn how to answer those questions. Yeah, because people don't know the things that you would know. And so they're asking things from what they understand, right? Right. And they say, oh, this is my chance to find an astronomer. What really are black holes? <laughs> yeah. I don't have any questions like that for you today. So <laughs> thank heavens. I'll, yeah. I'll tell a story. We uh, we have a summer school every two years. We bring in students, undergraduates and graduate students from around the world. And I overheard two of them talking at one of the schools. And one, an older woman is talking to a younger student. And she's saying, when you're an undergraduate and you go home for Christmas and your mom asks, what's a black hole? You can say as an undergraduate, well, they don't really understand them yet. Mm hmm. But when you're a graduate student, you get to say, we don't really understand them yet. Yeah. Yep. So then, why were you interested in science and astronomy? What got you started with that? I probably would have been interested in any case, but being a baby boomer really made a big, uh, had a big effect on me. Mm. Yeah. The year that Sputnik was launched, 1957 was the year I started kindergarten. Okay. The year that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon was the summer before my senior year of high school. Yeah. So I grew up with the space age. Right. Along with that, my dad had been a navigator in World War II, and he had learned how to use the stars to navigate. But he'd also been interested in stars even before then, only as, you know, the son of an Italian immigrant in Boston, the odds of becoming an astronomer in the 1930s were very low. So he went on, he went to college, but he studied, you know, economic, more practical. Mm -hmm. By the time I was growing up, I grew up in, for lack of a better term, white privilege. Yes. I had, uh, I was white and male and upper class and an American. And by the time I was growing up, being an Italian was no longer, you know, thought of as, as, as something to hold you back the way it had been for my father's generation. Mm -hmm. So I went to great schools. I had a, you know, encouragement all the way. Both my parents were college educated. The question was not, will you go to college, but what are you going to get your doctorate in? You know, as right. a little kid, I was dreaming about these things. Yeah. And also growing up in the economic boom after the war meant that you didn't even question if things would be possible. Of course you could do this. Of course you could do that. It never occurred to you that there might be something mm -hmm. standing in your way. Mm -hmm. And that led to a kind of arrogance. But it also led to the self-confidence to say, you know, by the time I had finished the Jesuit high school, I thought, oh, classics were fun. Latin and Greek was fun. Maybe I don't have to be a scientist. And I spent my first year studying history at Boston College. Mm -hmm. But my best friend was going to MIT, and MIT looked like it was fun. They got you know, tunnels you can explore at night. And they had weekend movies and science fiction movies. They had the biggest science fiction library in the world. And I went to MIT to have fun. Yeah. Now, it was a nerd's idea of fun because I'm a nerd. But it was for the fun of it. It wasn't, oh, this is where I can get a job or even this is how I can you know change the world and make things better. Mm -hmm. And it never occurred to me that I couldn't switch from being a history major to being a major in planetary geology. Why not? I only later realized what a phenomenal advantage that is to have that kind of background. 
Right. And it was when I was in graduate school and my best friend didn't come from that kind of background and was, you know, racked with doubts. Am I good enough to do this? Whereas when I would run into a brick wall in grad school, I'd say, oh, if I can't do this, nobody can. Come on, shut, shut up and go back to work. You know, his mom was saying, oh, Cliff, if it's too hard, you can come home and repair TVs. Whereas my parents would say, you'll get through it. Don't worry. Yeah. That's a big difference. Right. And a lot of that, I think, speaks to why even to this day, uh, the field of astronomy, though we certainly have more women than I was a, when I was a student, it's still very, very short of people of color, people from minorities. And, and yet... I've learned that everybody wants to know astronomy. Everybody wants to take part of it, but not everybody has the arrogance to think they can do it. Right. Yeah, because it seems like something that's very uh, lofty or very out there. I mean, it is the stars. It's also hard to see why you can justify doing it when there's people starving in the world, including yeah. your immediate family. Right. I, yeah, because... I've heard you mention before how that was hard for you to reconcile, like when you went to help with the Peace Corps and things like that, of how do I join the two? Yeah. That's what led me to join the Peace Corps is, you know, right. wait a minute. I've been living off of my privilege. Maybe it's time to re return something. And yeah. what shocked me was that what people really wanted from me was not to dig ditches for them, because frankly, they can dig ditches better than I can. Mm -hmm. But they wanted the thing I could contribute, which was an entree into this big millennial long conversation we call astronomy. Right. Looking at the stars and wondering what is that and could we ever go there and do they ever come here? Yeah, because I feel like there's a part of us that longs for the mystery of that and something to um, hope in and look, be excited about when even when life isn't super awesome and so being able to look at the stars, yeah. Especially when life isn't super awesome. Yeah. You can look at the stars and realize no matter how badly I've screwed things up here, the sky is still beautiful. Right. You can look at the stars and it does put things in perspective. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, in the horrible moments of our history, that's sometimes very reassuring. You know, now that I'm pushing 70, I've lived through enough horrible times to be able to look back on it. Uh, when I was in high school, it was the height of the Vietnam War. Horrible times. It was, the uh, you know, there were riots in Detroit within a mile of where I was going to high school. And not only were the riots horrible, but the conditions that led people to feel so, so despair that they would riot were horrible. Mm -hmm. And it would have been very easy to be trapped into thinking that's all there was to the universe. And yet, even now, 50 years later, um, how many people of your generation could tell me the name of the general running the war in Vietnam? Right. I couldn't. How many people remember, you know, who was president in 1969? Some of you might know. Some of you might have to look it up. Yeah. Um, Woodstock, big rock, you know, rock opera, big, big rock concert that everybody was talking about. Can you name three groups that actually performed there anymore? Yeah. The things that we thought were really important in 1969 turned out to not be important. Right. But people landing on the moon, they're going to remember in 500 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And, and, and this is, I guess, you just to finish it off, this is what makes us 
different from just well-fed cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. This is what makes us human. This ability to see beyond the immediate needs, which are real needs, you do have to eat, but to be able to say that in order to be human, you have to do more than just eat. Yeah. And you started out as an earth scientist, correct? By accident. Yeah. So then I feel like you understand the grounding of earth in addition to the wonder and the mystery of the stars. Oh, absolutely. And, and the wonderful thing of studying planetary geology is it makes you realize it's the same geology. Yeah. Different conditions, different outcomes, but it's the same science. Right. The moon is not radically different, you know, um, in a sort of uh, epistemological sense, or uh, it's not anything that we couldn't understand by going there. It's a place you can touch. It's a place you can walk around on. Just a mm -hmm. little bit harder to get to than most places. Right. So do you feel like that enhances the mystery of space or kind of lessens the mystery of space? Oh, it, it does both. Yeah. Um, the best comparison I can think of is um, imagine, remember when you were 14 and dreaming about falling in love. Mm -hmm. And maybe by the time you're 30, you've had a few you know, romances, successful or not successful. The dream that you had when you were 14 turns out to be really different from the reality, but there is no way you could have known that at 14. Right. It's only the experience that makes you realize that the dream was based on something you didn't even know. Yeah. And experiencing the solar system firsthand is like experiencing love firsthand. Mm. It makes you... Uh, in some ways, chuckle at the naive dreams that you had, but it also makes you recognize you wouldn't have gone there without those dreams in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. So then I feel like, yeah, that has also a lot to do with our relationship with church and religion and understanding that as a child compared to understanding that as an adult. So then... I'm nodding my head massively, Hero. Yeah. Can hear you through. Um, so then tell me a little bit of your background with church and religion and how that changed as you decided to become a part of the Jesuit order and how you received support for your community in that. It's very odd. Uh, unlike a lot of people, I did not have the kind of faith crisis that a lot of people have when they're teenagers. Mm -hmm. And that came, I think, from that that privileged arrogance, but also the sense that what, what the arrogance did is it didn't make me feel like I had to prove anything to anybody by, look, I'm smart enough, I can you know, put that childish stuff behind. And instead, I was able to say, okay, you know, the physics I know at 18 is different from the physics I understand at 10. Uh, it doesn't mean that physics is wrong. Mm -hmm. But I also had, yeah, I remember there were buttons that, you know, everybody wore buttons in the 60s. So yeah. one of them said, question authority. And my immediate answer answer was question authority says who? Think about it. Yeah. An awful lot of rebellion isn't rebellion; it's conformity. Mm -hmm. Rebellion is the style of being a teenager, and I refuse to follow those styles. So you know, everybody wanted to do drugs, so I wouldn't do drugs. Everybody wanted to get drunk, so I wouldn't get drunk. And I, you know, naturally feel wonderfully superior to everybody else which was its own kind of drug yeah it took me a while to recognize that one 
But I grew up in a family where my, you know, Irish mom, Italian dad, religion was just taken for granted. I went to a Catholic grade school with excellent teachers and they taught me science. So it never occurred to me that there would be a conflict between science and religion because mm -hmm. all of those questions were very well handled when I was 10 years old, 12 years old. And then, of course, the Jesuits in high school were able to just reinforce that and make you realize that religion was a deeper sort of thing. The biggest, or I think, religious moment to me was my freshman year at college. I was a history major at BC, and I felt really, really miserable in the freshman dorms because mm -hmm. all the other guys wanted to drink and do stupid things, and I just wasn't. Just it wasn't that. I was more moral than them. I was just bored with that sort of stuff. Right. It wasn't attractive to you. They'd screw up their lives. And then they come and they complain to me. And I think to myself, of course, life is tough when you're stupid. Yeah. <laughs> You've got problems. Maybe if you did your homework, it wouldn't be so bad. Right. Yeah. And just to get away from the freshman dorms, I thought, well, maybe I'll become a Jesuit priest because I can get out of the dorms. And I was going to the Jesuit high school college there at Boston College. So I talked to a Jesuit about joining, and he had this really strange suggestion. He goes, son, I hate it when they call you his son, son, have you prayed about this? Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, 18 years old, who prays? So following his direction, I went back to my room, closed the door, and was waiting for the voice from the ceiling. <laughs> Nothing was happening. Wondering, what is this prayer stuff? I guess, you know, I ought to be able to do this if I'm going to be doing it for a living. And the question occurred to me out of nowhere, what does a priest do for a living? Mm, yeah. And it occurred to me that what priests do for a living is to listen to the same idiots who I couldn't stand listening to in my freshman dorm, you know, people with problems. Yeah. And I was terrible at that. Uh, in part because I had grown up with too much privilege. I had not learned how to deal with problems because I hadn't had to. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, I was also enough of a nerd that I didn't have necessarily the antenna to, to follow that kind of thing. And it occurred to me then either I wasn't hearing anything because there was no God, in which case it would be dumb to be a priest. Or maybe this actually was God telling me it would be dumb for me to be a priest. Either way, the answer was obvious. I was in the wrong place. I didn't belong at BC. Mm -hmm. Where I did belong was where I was happy, where I felt called, where I would look forward every weekend to go visit my friend at, B at MIT. And that's when I decided to transfer. And I chose Earth and planetary science on a whim because it sounded like, you know, planets. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but the lesson that came from that is, first of all, to spend the time to be quiet and ask, am I really belonging here? And secondly, that God tells you where you need to be by the things that make you not just happy, but content, hmm. that make you realize I am in the place where I belong. And even if things are going bad, you know, being a yeah. student at MIT was not easy, but I knew I belonged there and I was able to endure in triumph. It takes a long time to get there. Yeah. And it doesn't take life being super easy to get there either, right? No. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, when I turned 30, I had no idea what I wanted. Yeah. Um, 
that's when I went off to join the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I didn't enter the Jesuits until I was basically 37. It okay. took me that long. And all that time I'd been a churchgoer and happily part of my religion and I, I enjoy my religion. Uh, I enjoy being part of a system that is there to help you reach the things you can't reach on your own. Hmm. You know, I belong to a big church for the same reason that I went to a big technical institution to yeah. learn my science. I need the support of other people. If I'm ever going to get to the forefront, if I'm ever actually going to be able to take advantage of the conversation that's gone on before and, and learn from that. Hmm. Yeah. So then as a Jesuit, you've dedicated your life to finding God in all things. And you've written that Christianity does not start with faith, but with experience. Faith is a reaction to that experience. So how do you hold on to your beliefs while also having an attitude of inclusivity towards other faiths and cultures? For the same way that I know that I can learn science from people who have bought into some theory of planetary formation that I don't believe in. And I can give you reasons why I'm right and they're wrong, mm -hmm. but their data are just as good as my data. Right. In a lot of ways, my experience of religion is paralleled to my experience in science. And I know that it is the people who are close to you, but not the same as you, who can best teach you and stretch you and make you grow. Mm, yeah. um, when I was 30, I was dating a wonderful woman whose attitude towards religion was close enough that I could figure out where she was coming from and different enough that I could let it challenge me. Hmm. And of course, the relationship didn't turn into a romance, but yeah. it did turn into a tremendous growth for me. I, and I hope for her, you know, wherever she is now, whatever it is she's doing, that was nearly 40 years ago. And yet I still remember that because I needed someone like that to challenge the easy faith that I had kind of fallen into, the rut I'd fallen into at that point. Right. And so it's really important to have people that you almost agree with. <laughs> the great thing is you start reading about other spiritual uh, people, people who have gone through this journey. And in the life of C.S. Lewis, all of his friends were people like that to him. The people who were close enough to him that he would trust them to let them challenge him. Right. Yeah. And I feel like we need to not be afraid of those people in our life for the afraid of the challenge and the questions, but to let it help mold us and become even better versions of who we are. It, it's a sense, it's going back to that wonderful arrogance, yeah. to be so certain that God loves me, that I'm not worried about uh, somehow losing that. Right. That, uh, you know, when I go into a kitchen and try to cook something, I follow a cookbook because mm -hmm. I'm not a very good cook. I know people who can walk into a kitchen and see the ingredients there and know enough about food to put a really wonderful meal together without ever having to look it up. Yeah, I'd be one of those people. <laughs> and the difference in religion is some people need the cookbook. And that's okay, because you'll get an edible meal. But don't think that anybody who's not following the cookbook is somehow evil. Right. Maybe they've got a better understanding of food than you do. Mm-hmm. And maybe they can teach you something. But uh, fundamentalism in anything, whether it's science or religion or cookery, is an okay place to start, but it's yeah. a terrible place to end. 
Yeah, and I've heard you say before, too, that just because you don't go to church doesn't mean you're not interested in and fascinated by and drawn towards bigger questions. And just because you do go to church doesn't mean that you have it all figured out and that you're not still questioning and wondering and asking, yeah, but what about this? If you think you understand the universe perfectly, you'll never be a scientist because science is all about looking at the things you don't understand. Yes. And if you think you understand God perfectly, I don't see how you can actually be a religious person because there's nothing left. <laughs> yeah. But I, I go back to uh, you know the, the story of love again, uh, romantic love. My parents lived, both of them, to nearly 100. My dad made it to 100. They were married 72 years. And they were still learning things about each other mm-hmm. to the very end. Yeah. That's what a love relationship is. That ought to be what your relationship with God is. Yeah, so I know a lot of people that I talk to and have heard their stories, they struggle a little bit with how faith and science can work together. So how do you believe that it's possible for the two to live together in harmony? Well, you're searching for the truth. It's not the truth. It's the search for the truth. Uh, Yeah. You don't search if you think you've already got it. And you can't search if you don't already have stuff that you think you do have. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to start from someplace and then build on it. Yeah. And it, so that allows me to know that I can be confident in what I do know, but also recognize that not only can I be wrong, someplace in there I probably am wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Because that's a place to grow. And I've never in my life experienced the case where science told me one thing that I'm sure of and religion told me something completely different and they're too conflicted. That's not how religion works. That's not how science works. But what I have experienced is science told me this one thing that I'm sure of, but then science itself also told me this other thing. That seems to contradict the first bit of science. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get excited because you say, wow, I'm about to learn something new and wait till I get to the next meeting and tell my friends about mm-hmm. this. Yeah, this will be a paper someplace. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes with religion and faith, that's the area where we get a little bit scared is when we understand something as true and then we see something else and then we don't know what to do with that. Right. Right. Um, I'll give you another example going back to love. I guess I'm being you know, fix, fixated on love. This is a guy who, you know, his love life was so good that he you know, took a vow of celibacy, right? Well, if I'm an expert in anything, it's how not to make a relationship work. Yeah. And you don't make a relationship work by being afraid to challenge and question it. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you a slightly different example. I, I love sailing. And when I was at MIT, I was on the sailing team. We had these dinghies that we would sail in the Charles River. And all the years that I sailed in those dinghies, I never once capsized, and I never once won a race. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's the same way in love. If you're not willing to have an argument with somebody, it's because you don't trust the relationship, and you don't trust them. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to have an argument with God, It's because you don't trust God. Hmm. But part of the argument is listening to the other side. Yeah. And even in some cases, the scariest part is listening to what you just said and going, "Ah!" 
maybe not. Maybe I got that one wrong. Yeah. Right. And being okay to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in your TED Talk that religion and science are both acts of worship. Can you expound on this a bit more and share what you believe worship means? To me, worship is encountering God. And the encounter has got to be a two-way street. It's God encountering you and you encountering God. It's making yourself open to hearing what God's trying to say to you. Now, how does God talk to us? How does God encounter us? Um, I can do no better than to quote St. Paul, first chapter of Romans, since the beginning of time, God has spoken to us in the things he created. And so encountering God in creation becomes an act of worship. To be able to look at the universe, not just as a marvelous puzzle, but as a voice, a statement of the creator who so loved the world that he sent his son. And in the incarnation, as St. Athanasius puts it, the entire universe is cleansed and quickened. Hmm. So the universe is sacred and the universe becomes pregnant in a sense. It's a way it's about to give forth. It's about to give forth a new life. And this life is the relationship between you and the creator. Mm -hmm. It goes back to why am I doing the science? Am I doing it just because it's a job? Am I doing it so that people will pat me on the head and say, what a clever boy I am? Trust me, I've done science for both of those reasons. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it's not enough. Because science is too hard. And by hard, I don't mean difficult. I mean boring. There's an awful lot of boredom that goes into waiting for the data to yeah, come in right. or waiting for you to be able to understand it. And you don't have the wherewithal to wait it out if there wasn't something deeper that you really, really wanted. And that deeper thing ultimately has to be the joy of understanding, which to me is the very same joy I feel in moments of prayer when I suddenly go, oh, God was here. Mm which is also a really, really scary moment. Yeah. So something on that I'm really interested and want to hear more about what we have to say about this is you mentioned that uh, religion needs science to keep it away from superstition and keep it close to reality to protect it from creationism, which at the end is a kind of paganism. It's turning God into a nature God. And so how do you reconcile that with finding beauty and feeling God in seeing the stars and being in nature and for people who understand God in those ways, how do we keep it close to reality? There's a challenge. Hmm. Um, the thing to always avoid is the easy answer. And so anything I would say here would be the very kind of easy answer that something to be avoided. Yeah. But there has to be this living tension that God created everything, but gave it freedom. Hmm. And without that freedom, there is no love. And without that freedom, we are not entities who could be in a loving relationship with God. And the universe itself has a certain freedom. God doesn't have every atom on a string. And you find that in the life of Jesus. 
Jesus could have been, you know, something like an Eastern avatar arriving fully grown mm -hmm. on a cloud of, of power and might right. and saying, all right, everybody, here's how it's going to be from now on. But instead he came as a baby. And, you know, as several times you find in the, in the gospel stories, he could have ordered the bricks to turn into bread. He doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. He is so confident, dare I say arrogant, that he doesn't feel he has to control the universe on a set of strings. That instead, he's willing to wait for the universe to accept him. Takes a long time. Mm -hmm. But he's got all the time in the world to wait for us. Yeah. So then is it, it's less about saying that God is in these things and more about finding the beauty of who God is. You see how you, you see God's personality in the way that God did do things. Right. Rather but than insisting God. that God should have done things this way. Yeah. I mean, how, who are we to say that we understand who God is? And yet, you know, who am I to say that I understand how my best friend is? Right, yeah. And yet, you know, my best friend is still my best friend. And it's the joy of discovering more of who they are that makes the relationship great. You got it. Yeah. That's, that's where I am. Yeah. I like that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you another twist to that story. Go for it. And this, I think, comes along with, with the, a temptation of fundamentalism. When I was in my 30s, I was living in Boston, and I was sharing an apartment with an old high school friend of mine. And my high school friend was madly in love with a, a girl he'd met in college. And he would describe, oh, Valentine's Day, I've bought her a dozen roses. Boy, if that doesn't tell her, nothing will. Mm -hmm. And he was right, nothing would. Because she liked him, but she wasn't in love with him. Mm, yeah. A year after that, after they'd broken up, he actually met the woman he's now been married to for nearly 40 years. And I'm sure over the years, he's bought her roses for Valentine's Day. But he didn't do it to win her love. He did it to express the love they've already got. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of the things that religion, scripture, tell us we should do in our relationship with God are not things that we have to do or God won't love us. Right. They're not things that we have to do to make God love us, but they're things we can do to show God that we love God. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, nature and the cosmos are his way of saying that he loves us too. Exactly. And not just nature and the cosmos, but the joy that we get when we encounter and live in right. nature and the cosmos. Yeah. So this is the a fact that of, it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> right. Totally. So I know that people have asked you this too, but, and then you ended up writing about it, about extraterrestrials and if they can be baptized. <laughs> but <laughs> I am well, you curious know, I came though. to science out of science fiction. So of course, yeah. it's going to be an obvious question. Yeah. But I do want to know what your thoughts are on that and if you believe that there is sentient life beyond our planet and the universe and if you do do you think jesus came for them too you've asked the question exactly the right way do i believe mm -hmm. i don't have the evidence there you know do i believe there are other planets yes but i'm not a matter of belief they're there i can see them i can see their 
you know, effects in my telescope. I cannot see evidence for other life in the universe, but my belief means that I will do things that I wouldn't do if I didn't believe, such as spend some time trying to understand what life elsewhere in the universe might be like, spend some time trying to figure out how we could look for life in the universe. If you came to me and I'm the director of the observatory and you say you want to, you know, money your telescope time because I've got this way of looking for life in the universe, I'd say go for it because I believe enough that I think it's worth looking for and that there's a chance you'll see it. And I could yeah. be wrong. On the other hand, if you came and said, I want to spend two years searching for flying saucer men, I'm going to go, I don't think so, because I don't <laughs> believe in flying saucers. Yeah. Again, I could be wrong. Right. So that's the difference between having evidence. You have to have the belief before you can look for the evidence. The great thing about the question, you know, would you baptize an ET, is not this answer or that answer. And, you know, I'm clever enough I could come up with funny answers. Only if she asks. <laughs> yeah. But the better question is, what does baptism mean? Yeah. And only when you recognize a universe that's bigger than just the people who look like you and me, then you appreciate what baptism means what redemption means. Um, and it's not the first time the human race has had to deal with this. We've encountered human beings on other continents. And the question, you know, to them was, well, are they just animals that we can enslave or are they human beings that we should baptize? And plenty of mistakes were made all over the place by plenty of people yeah. who were, you know, for the, for the best possible motives. And yet to say they should be baptized is another way of saying they are equally human, just like you and me. Mm. Um, and that's the ex experience of the people in the New World. Imagine how the Romans must have felt when they went up and saw these crazy people with red hair and painting themselves blue in, in Ireland. Right. You know, so they Italian, my Italian ancestors encountering my Irish ancestors, and they must have thought, are these people really worth baptizing? Yeah, right. It's important to recognize that the baptism goes both ways. We learn from the new cultures. We have a way of encountering God now, having encountered other religions and other people, and to be able to say, this works, and, oh, I see what they're doing there. Don't do that. That doesn't work. We've made that mistake, too. Mm -hmm. And so you don't you know, grab onto everything equally. But you do have the freedom to say, this could work, I can learn, and I hope I do learn. Mm -hmm. Now, the odds are that, yes, there's life. The farther away in the universe you go, the greater the odds that there will be intelligent life. But the lower the odds that we'll be able to you know, communicate with them, and really the question would ever come up. And yet, this entire universe was created by the same God. Hmm. The incarnation in, in Christian theology, we identify with Jesus and we identify Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And what does scripture say about the second person? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. Mm -hmm. Well, the second person didn't begin when Jesus was born. The second person is there from the beginning. Mm. 
and the beginning of the universe is the same point in everywhere in the universe. That's what the Big Bang is telling us. Mm. We all come from the same point in the same time. Yeah. And in our creed, we say creation occurred through the second person. It's not just God the Father making stuff. Yeah. You know, read the creed carefully. So it does mean that however God creates and interacts with these other intelligences, it is the same God, it is the same fundamental question. And finally, in Scripture, we've got the example of the stories of angels. And the interesting thing to me about the story of angels is not only that, oh, there is another created entity in a relationship with God, mm -hmm. but a created entity that, by our traditions, had a very different story of redemption, of choice, of do you believe or not believe. But the one thing that's in common is the necessity for the free choice. Yeah, that's really, I really like how you explain that and view that. That makes me excited for what could be. Um, yeah. There is a, a wonderful poem by um, Alice Menard, Christ in the Universe. And I won't quote it because I can't off the top of my head, but it's well worth looking up and maybe yeah. you want to put, might want to put a link to it. Sure, yeah. And uh, she talks about the marvelous moment when we encounter the creatures from around the universe, you know, after, after we're all in heaven together. And the final moment is when we can show them how God appeared to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she wrote that in 1918. It's so great how things of the past can be so relevant for things now. I hope so, because now <laughs> is going to be the past. Soon yes, enough. right, exactly. You know, when I was a kid, I thought it was going to be 1969 forever. Right. Thank yeah. God it isn't. Right, exactly. So I know some people may will maybe not necessarily agree with everything that you believe or I believe. or I, I hope they don't. Good heavens. Right. Boring yeah. Heaven. So how do we communicate effectively to people who don't necessarily see eye to eye as us and share the value in asking questions and looking outside the box and being comfortable with the mysteries of life? It starts by being comfortable with yourself. Mm. It comes by not being afraid. Yeah. And once you're sure who you are, then you can enjoy other people who they are. The one thing you can't be is is a wannabe, is now make pretend. And you don't want to try to say, oh, I understand you now. I, I hear you now. Because the first thing to recognize is, no, we don't understand them. Hmm. And that can be somebody as close as our siblings, and we don't understand them. Yeah. You know, if I can't understand my siblings, what makes me think I can understand people from a different place in a different culture? But I can love my siblings and enjoy being with them and enjoy learning from them. Mm -hmm. But that only comes when I'm comfortable with who I am and with who they are. Right. Yeah, that's something that I've been learning a lot lately, too, is I don't necessarily see eye to eye with some of the people who are very close to me, closest people in my life. And yet I so desperately want to do life with them. And the only way to do that is 
yeah, to love both myself and them, regardless of what we both think and understand. Well, if I can quote a, a Nobel Prize winner who mm -hmm. happened to be a pop singer from the 60s, Bob Dylan, yeah. uh, don't criticize what you can't understand. And that's not to say that they're right. They can be wrong. People who love can be wrong. But yeah. as you get older, what you said, this is something that you can't write down. You can only hear. When you're a kid, you hear the church saying, no, don't do that. But when you're older, you're really hearing the church going, no, don't do that. Yeah. And it's not a set of rules that say you have to do this, but rather the world is full of stupid mistakes that will affect your life and yet god even uses our mistakes mm, yeah that's so true so don't be afraid of them and don't be afraid to admit them yeah so for those who may be struggling to figure out how all of this fits together how science and faith fit together how the questioning works and don't know how their questions have a place within our places of worship, what words of encouragement would you have for them? There's a religious writer, Anne Lamott, who has a marvelous phrase. She's actually quoting Paul Tillich, who wrote an entire long article, but she summed it up in one phrase. Mm -hmm. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Yes, my father-in-law also loves to say that. And certainty kills your faith. Yeah. So glory in your questions hmm. your questions mean your faith is alive hmm. yeah and i guess that goes back to not being afraid not being afraid which is a whole lot easier to say than to do <laughs> totally because fear is a big thing oh yeah yeah and uh it's interesting every moment that the resurrected christ appears the first thing he says is don't be afraid Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's the zeroth commandment. <laughs> yeah. So as we bring this conversation and this interview to a close, I just have one final question. And that is, what is one of the most challenging parts of being an astronomer? And what is one of the most rewarding aspects? Oddly enough, the most challenging is the boredom. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time for data to develop. It takes a long time for you to gather the information. And at the end of the day, when you've been sitting in front of the computer all day, you can be tired and feel like you've done nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the jokes in our Jesuit community full of astronomers is we all rush to try to empty the dishwasher because at least you've done something to right. Yeah. I can feel like that as a mom sometimes too. Yeah. And it's that sense that every day is just like every other day and I'm not making progress when in fact the progress, you're, you're laying the, the groundwork for the progress that will happen. Yeah. And the most rewarding to me is when I go outside and I look at the stars, but instead of them being oh, not only pretty lights in the sky, they're places that I know, places whose stories I can tell, in the in the 80s, there was a really trashy movie called Times Square. I would not recommend this as a great movie to rush out and see. But it had one really cute gimmick. In those days, Times Square was pretty much a, a deserted, miserable place full of homeless people and drug addicts and the like. 
And so the opening scene is they pan around Times Square and they have all these actors playing homeless people and despicable people and people that make your skin crawl. And then they go on and tell the story. And at the end of the movie, they do the same pan, only now you know who all those people are. Mm, yeah. And it's a completely different experience. So being able to look at the stars and to know who they are, to know their names, to know their histories, to be able to say, I've studied you. You're really interesting. That, to me, is to be able to look at the sky with that extra depth is the best part of being an astronomer. Yeah. Right. And I feel like that kind of thing is also what makes faith so exciting, too, is that mystery and that wonder. The mystery and the wonder and the experience. Yeah. Right. That's so good. Do you ever wish that you had taken a different path? Oh, of course. And yeah. uh, any number of different paths. There were so many things I could have done. But at the end of the day, I realized I managed to somehow stumble into the one thing that I actually am really good at. And that not many people would have had the bizarre combination of background to be able to do what I can do. Right. And so that makes me feel content with where I am. Yeah. That's good. I guess that's how we all should view life, regardless of what paths we've taken. I guess. Exactly, because nobody can be everything. And no. And that's I why feel we like, have friends. Yeah. Yeah. And why we get to do life with other people and be in community. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Heather Thanks Guy. for asking the great questions and for the work you guys do. Yeah. I love being able to talk with people who see things differently than I do and who have different understanding of the world. It's wonderful to do life with people who are not like me. Wow, so many profound insights. After talking with Brother Guy, he is definitely someone I would love to have many more conversations with. He is so gracious, and I could sense his heart for people and a desire to bring understanding on how science and faith can work together. It is possible to hold love in your heart for both God and science. One does not need to negate the other. There is simplicity and also mystery, wonder and groundedness. For those who would like to read the poem Brother Guy mentioned, you can find the link in the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments on this episode or need further clarification on anything you've heard, please don't hesitate to reach out in person or contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Thanks for listening.